0: Hungry Trilobite Podcast would like to start by acknowledging these fine conventions. SoonerCon is Central Oklahoma's longest-running pop culture convention. The next event is scheduled for June 24th through 26th, 2002 in Norman, Oklahoma. However, they need your help to put on the next event. Please visit SoonerCon.com to find out how you can help make SoonerCon 30 a reality. The Hellmouth Convention The Hellmouth Convention is a celebration of all pop culture, but specifically things like Buffy, Angel, Firefly, and Dr. Horrible. It is held in Los Angeles, California, and the next event is scheduled for June 3rd through 5th, 2022. Proceeds benefit the Los Angeles LGBT Center as well as the Ron Glass Memorial Scholarship Fund. For more information, go to thehellmouth.org. Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm going to be your host. Today I'm welcoming author Michael Stephen Myers to the show, who has brought some of his material to go over, and we're going to have a discussion about the link between creativity and personal tragedy. Michael is a fantastic resource for this. He he has a unique experience coming from the place of being a combat veteran. And we're going to get directly into that right now.
1: Well, number one, you know, I'm a, I'm a writer. You know, mm-hmm. for, for years I've been, I was part of HBO's input with uh, HBO's Vietnam War Story in the 80s, had some input on in Tales from the Crypt as, as uh, we talked. I really appreciate Stephen. I mean, for years and years and years, I've been told what a great prolific writer I am and I'm going to become famous and all this stuff, but. You know it's nice, but it's I'm not a self promoter because I'm a decorated former infantry officer, so mm-hmm. I carry that sort of thing that I don't like to self promote myself, you know, but Steven's got me on your program and some other programs, and I really appreciate his effort it's helping me out I think it's given me a uh, incentive and drive. I've been around a long time, I started writing in the eighties like I mentioned but uh number one is yeah, i'm a I'm a veteran first, you know I was a ranger infantry officer with a rifle platoon in the war in vietnam wounded and decorated and uh i started writing when i came back and then i got involved with the hbo and there was one called the lieutenant with uh their first successful series uh the uh, vietnam war stories and i think it was loosely based on on me and my experience I had one written for that I mentioned to, to you, uh, Billy and the One-Armed Bandit, that I wrote for Tales from the Crip. That, but then that Tales from the Crip show went to England and sort of disappeared and died. So it was close to getting in the can, but it never made it. So I'm going to share a little bit of that with you this morning, or this afternoon, I should say. But I think the first thing I should share with you is uh, a little prose I wrote about when I came home. Because when, when the Vietnam soldier came home, it was a lot different than now. I have bittersweet sweet feelings because anybody that wears a uniform today is considered a hero, you know, which is okay with me. I appreciate that. I thank him and everything myself, but it's bittersweet because of the way we were treated when we came home. So I wrote a little prose and I just want to share that with you real quickly, if it's all right. It's called you coming do. home. It's called coming home. It's my true story of coming home. Says how I do remember coming home from Vietnam. I remember that day very clearly. Yes, how I remember that day. I wondered how I was ever going to stand next to my family again, to be the young man that I was when I left. Could I ever be that young man again? How would answer those questions that I knew would be coming? Could I? I really didn't know. But I knew they would be coming. Whenever one of the men would be leaving the field or would finish his tour of duty and be leaving the field, I would hear others warning him not to wear his uniform and to keep a low profile, to hide. I thought to myself, why? Wasn't this America? I remember that day, that day I came home, It was during a layover in San Francisco that I took a taxi across the Golden Gate to Sausalito. I remember everything was moving so fast, so very fast. Everyone seemed to be in some sort of a tremendous hurry, but to where? They were just living their lives. I wanted to find a lounge near the calm waters of the bay. I wanted to unwind, to allow my mind to realize that it was all over that I was safe, that I was home. I had worn my uniform because I was proud of it and of the work my men and I had done for our country. I was alone now. I had left them out there on those hot and bloody fields of battle just the day before. I stood tall with all the honorable stature that I could possibly muster. I was a proud Virginian. I was a patriot, you see. I had done my duty as all of the people before me had done theirs. I tried my best to serve as bravely as that plumed-hatted great-grandfather who along with 12,000 other brave Virginians charged up that hill in Gettysburg, or my Naval officer father who was at Iwo, Leyte Golf and Okinawa, or my uncle who flew B-17s over Europe and jets in Korea, or that handsome uncle who was at Normandy. How gallant they all were, I walked into that lounge and I walked into that lounge with that decorated officer's uniform, looking as sharp as any American soldier, sailor, airman or Marine ever could have coming home from a war. I wanted to be recognized for what I had done, for what I'd been through. I wanted to be thanked. I wanted to be alive again. People were there in that lounge, happy people. They were drinking, talking, and laughing. They were laughing. They were just living their lives. I was just another young man like the many they'd seen before. Just another soldier returning home from that unpopular war. Well, they were busy, you see. They were just too busy. I sat alone, my legs stretched out so my feet were resting on the coffee table in front of me. I sat there quietly for a while, sipping a red wine, watching the sailboats as they ever so gently floated by. I wanted to let go of the terrible visions in my head. I wanted to let go of the screams. I wanted to let go of the death of the dying. I wanted to let go of the guilt of living. I wanted to let go of my troubled mind. I wanted to let go of me. I remember that day, that day I came home. As I proudly sat there in my glorious uniform waiting for someone, anyone, as I sat there watching those peaceful little boats and listening, listening to the laughter of those fine American people, I slowly began to realize something, something that I would never forget. I realized that not one of them, not a single one of them even cared. They didn't even care. They just did not care. And that, when I came home from the war at San Francisco there, I remember the first thing I saw across the street was uh, hundreds of demonstrators holding signs, baby killer, uh, "Murderer," spit at us and stuff like that. And as a result of that, and you probably visited my webpage, That went on for years. I was in what I call my 10 year post Vietnam drift. And I went up in the mountains and lived in Blue Lake, the mountains of Blue Lake, California, in the Redwood Forest, lived in a trail with just me and my dogs for a year. I used to have to brace myself when I would go into town because I had the fear that somebody would actually try and talk to me or ask me a question like that. You know, what was it like over there? That's a big question, but a PTSD veteran, which is where I'm at now, a PTSD veteran, if you think about it, a scar, when we wound ourselves, if we cut ourselves badly, it scars. And that scar is a sign of healing. You live with that scar. You were wounded, you have the scar to show you were wounded, and you live with the rest of your life. That's the same thing as PTSD, and people need to understand. That an emotional scarring from this traumatic events like a plane crash or a bad accident or somebody murdering for any, any of that stuff and a, a, a vietnam veteran has it even worse because to see multiple times like for instance a statistic you're probably not familiar with world war ii the combat infantry infantry so infantryman soldier in world war ii now there were some terrible battles I, I give them that but On the average, in four years, they saw about 44 days of actual fighting combat. The Vietnam soldier, infantry soldier, in one year saw over 200 days of actual fighting combat. So it was a bloody, bloody war. And then to come home to nothing, and then to see everybody now such a, everybody's a hero for just getting close to the uniform, it hurts me. So many years later now, we've got people saying, well, thank you for your service. Thank you. Yeah, that's nice. You know, that's nice. That means a lot. The words mean a lot, but it's awful late, you know, it's awful late. I don't think a combat infantryman or a combat Marine, anybody that fought for our country, especially if they were hurt and blood for our country, should ever want for anything. They shouldn't be homeless they should have home they should have free health care they should have transportation they should have a home they should have everything they should have comfort they should have comfort and uh, when we brought uh, today we see what's going on we're bringing Afghan people over which is fine I, I love that but back in my day when we came home we also had Vietnamese refugees and when they came over our government gave them because they were fishermen gave them fifty thousand and a fishing boat in Texas, it was a port in Texas, where they set them up so they could continue their life, but they've never done anything like that with with their veterans. Now, when you're trained, like I was ranger trained and jungle trained by the special forces before I went to Vietnam, I was a great soldier. I was a track soldier. I was one of the best we had. And when I went to that war, I did my duty. And I lost men and we cost lives and, you know, we fought a war like Americans are supposed to fight a war, but they never told us how to not fight the war anymore, how to come home and how to find ourselves. So it took me 10 years before I finally started healing. And it took a Marine named Jack Jones, in Eureka, California in the mid eighties. First time I walked into a Vietnam veteran outreach center which, by the way, my friend, I have a friend in Senator Max Cleland who started those. And, but I went in and Jack Jones, and I listened to a group for the first time. I didn't talk, I just listened to them because being a young officer, you know, there was kind of that alienation from the enlisted man, even though I was three years enlisted before I became an officer. So I listened and I heard my story over and over. And then Jack and I went into his office and he asked me a few questions. He asked me questions like, what was it like over there? I mean, not what was like over there, but do you have trouble due to your experiences over there? Do you have trouble with attention span? And, you know, I said, yeah. Do you have trouble with relationships? Yeah. Getting divorced. Uh, do you have trouble with stick-to-itiveness, sticking with a job? Do people bounce off you? And I said, yeah, yeah. And he said, well, look in the mirror. And I'm standing in front of a full-length mirror. And he said, maybe you're the problem. And that's the first day I turned around and saw myself and and decided it's okay to come down off the mountain. It's okay to try and, and people, I learned people were just trying to do the best thing they knew how. And so I just, and then fortunately I got into the health club business and I became healthy and I ran and just because I've been doing it since I was 14 and uh, started writing. And that was uh, about the eighties. So. Which brings me to, I don't know what you want to talk about first, because you, you're, you're, which one of you, is it you or your wife that's in science,
0: science fiction type thing? You. Part of this, the reason for this show is that I love to explore creativity and science fiction. And I, I was, among the many things that I love to talk about is is the history and the fact there's a, a pedigree of things like, uh, you know. Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings after serving in World War I, and Serling wrote Twilight Zone after serving in World War II. And, I mean, I love that, but I am not going to presume to sit there and try to steer this conversation <laughs> when you're talking about so many things that are, that have needed to be talked about for so long.
1: Yeah, well, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I, uh, the what I'm working on, well, probably the proudest thing that I've ever done in my life at one time, I thought was the nucleus of who I was, was Vietnam, year and a half in a bloody, gutty, shoot them up, bang, bang, trying to stay alive. Leading American soldiers. Proudest thing I ever did. Until I got back at Fort Benning and I was officer in charge of funeral detail. And then we're burying, when, when we were in combat, we saw sometimes three to five to 10 combat battles a month you know so then I'm doing that and when I get to Fort Benning and I'm kind of phasing out of the army and the war is still in me I uh I, I was given the honor of being the officer in charge of funeral details. sharp I was the officer that handed the flag to the next of the kin and saluted and said on behalf of the United States American and it was just it was so gut-wrenching and then the guns and the and people always broke. I mean, that, that, that to me became even more of an honor than leading the soldiers, was burying the soldiers. That even became, so it was bang, bang, two of them. Which led me to my writing. My writing was bleeding. I was venting. I had one psychiatrist say, you're different than any other Vietnam veteran I've, I've ever met. Yeah. Most of them run from it. And somehow you've turned and embraced it. And that too helped me start healing. And another one said, The reason you exercise is to maintain battle readiness. The reason you act. I was an actor. I did plays, hundreds of plays and uh, and commercials in California and Idaho. And he said, the reason you do that is get away from yourself. Well, when I started finding myself again, it was in writing. The very first thing I wrote was called Badges of Honor. And basically what I had done is some, at one point during that healing phase, when I first started healing, I took six steno pads. He said, he said, do the catharsis of writing, write it down. So I took six of these steno pads and I, I just filled them. I just regurgitated everything I could think of, no format, nothing just story after story memory. And I, all I and I realized after six full steno pads, all I did was touch the surface. So I, uh, threw them together. Then I was with the lady for 22 years in California and I was away on stage and I had a really rough year. 9-11, we watched 9-11 together and we watched these people jump into their deaths. And then I took my special dog, border collie sport with me to California because I had to be in plays and we had a home in Idaho. So I left her in Idaho, took my special dog, went to California and had a place in the Redwoods and I had three plays to do that year where I was an actor. I'd been recruited to be in these plays and my dog got sick that Christmas. So 9-11 and then Christmas, my dog dies from cancer. And then I'm, I used to check with Patty every day in in, uh, Idaho, you know, talk to her. And then I couldn't get hold of her for a couple of days. And I called her mother and she said, are you sitting down? And I knew my life had changed. So bang, bang, bang. I lost we lost nine 11. I lost my dog. And then I lost Patty. After 22 years, I dropped everything and came to Virginia back home to Virginia, where I had family and started writing. And when I put that, when I put all that together and I made that play, I invited about a hundred friends and it went really well, good reception. So I broke it down into three, one act plays. One was called a healing of war and they're all post healing post stories. Uh, about war and warriors and dreams and and the first one I did I entered into a play festival and it won the play festival it got five or six awards in the play festival the next year it got seven more awards and then it traveled to DC and Silver Spring Maryland and it went to Texas Weatherford part of the Vietnam War Museum down there at the Will Rogers all time so I had this play that was doing a lot of good for people and I followed it up with with other plays like A Father's Legacy and Cameron Bay and uh, things like that, other plays that did really well. So it, it brought me to now where I've got the two things. And one thing I wanted to share with you that you'd really, I think you'd really be interested in is, is this one, Billy and the One Armed Bandit. I'll, and I'll end, on, I'll end on the soldier stuff, but I want to go over here to this, this wonderful story I wrote called Billy and the One Armed Bandit. Now, it came from, here's a writer's mind. I was in Idaho and I went to Wells, Nevada to just a little recreation, recreation, gamble a little bit, you know, just to kind of have fun by myself. And I walked into the casino and the first thing I see is this big billboard placard sandwich sign on the lobby there saying writing contest. I went writing contest in a casino. And I thought, well, that's peculiar. And there was about three subjects. And the first one was, what would F. Scott Fitzgerald, or Ernest Hemingway, and you be talking about if you were in one of our rooms? And I thought, well, that's really interesting. That, but then I thought, probably all the people that entered this contest will pick that one. The second one, the second category was so insignificant, I don't even remember what it was. But the third one was almost like small print, I an afterthought and said, what a slot machine would say if it could talk. And I went. Bingo, that's the one I want to write about, because I, too, was a Rod Serling fan and, and stuff like that. And uh, so the, here's the mind. When, the next thing that came to my mind was Ed Sullivan show introducing the Muppets, the very first time the Muppets had been on. Here's a baby grand piano, a black baby grand piano. Here's this little green frog singing a lullaby, Kermit. So he's singing this little lullaby, and then he finishes the lullaby, and this piano opens up into this big teeth teeth shark-teeth-eating monster, grabs hold of Kermit, eats him, and then burps. And I thought, wow, that's really funny. That was funny at the time, and I thought, well, you know, that's what's going to happen in my story. I'm going to have a demon eat the star. So that's number one. And then the next thing I thought of was the real event on the beach in Northern California. a rogue wave came over and sucked a little girl that was walking with her mother out to sea and all she could do is watch her die so with that that's where i got the idea from and i'm gonna share with you the opening scene to that and then i included this is a clairvoyant girl and i included let me see if i have a synopsis but anyway i'll just read you a couple parts but there's this clairvoyant girl who ever since she was a teenager in high school Heard voices, a voice, a voice, and so she goes through some traumatic events as an older woman, and this is the first traumatic event she goes through, and then she goes through one more traumatic event that I'm going to share with you, and then she loses her mind. So, and then she walks into a casino, but we all know about the 9/11 jumpers. I mentioned this on the phone. We not, we all know. We all watch them in horror. We watch these people, these innocent people, have to make these life and death decisions suddenly and fast. I mean, like your ending is here. This is it. You either jump or you burn. You know, air is out here, smoke's in here. The natural reaction for the human being is to get away from the danger. They jump. So God knows who they were. We don't know who they were. So in Billy, I introduce you to three of these people. And I'm gonna share that with you in a second, but here's the opening. And this is written in a, a screenplay format. So you have to kind of visualize it. Fade in, and we're in the exterior. It's in the beach and it's during the day. It is a sunny day a deserted, at a deserted beach in Northern California. A man, I use my name a lot, Michael, his wife, Billy, tall with long flowing blonde hair, five-year-old blonde daughter, Sarah, and their golden retriever boy are walking along the ocean. The man is tossing a stick into the water for the dog to run and retrieve. He does this a few times while the mother and daughter enjoy the surf on their feet. Michael says, fetch boy. He makes another toss and the dog runs after the stick. He picks it up, quickly returns for the next toss. He drops the stick at the man's feet, tail wagging. Billy says, why don't you give him a rest? The water looks too rough and he looks exhausted. Michael looks downward at Boy's face. You need a rest, Boy? The dog looks up at Michael, anticipating the next toss. Sarah is looking for shells and has moved closer to the water. Billy, don't go too close to the water, Sarah. Sarah pulls back from the water's edge. Sarah, okay, Mommy. The family continues their afternoon stroll along the ocean when suddenly Boy takes off at a full run until he is almost out of sight. Michael, now what the hell? Boy, come back here, Boy. He pauses and waits a minute, squinting to see what the dog has found. Then he hollers again, Boy, come back here, boy. Um, Billy also squints to see. Sarah runs forward. Billy, what is that, Michael? I'm not sure. It looks like seaweed or something. Fade out. Then the next scene is at the dead seal. They're all looking downward, and the camera pans to a dead seal entangled in a fishing net. Sarah, what is it, mommy? It's a seal honey. What happened to it? It looks like it got caught in a fishing net, sweetheart, said Michael. Sarah kneels and looks closely. Is it dead? Billy, yes, honey, I'm afraid it has gone to heaven. Sarah is crying for the seal. Billy comforts her, boy licks her face. Billy, it's okay, honey. It's okay, honey, sometimes things like this happen. Boy is worried about you now. Sarah hugs boy close. Boy slobbers on her face even more. Sarah says, yuck, stop kissing me. Boy continues licking her face until everyone smiles. Michael says, you guys go ahead and I'll catch up. I want to bury the little guy. Billy, okay, honey, let's go ahead and let daddy take care of her. Billy and Sarah begin walking away. Sarah, did she really go to heaven, mommy? Billy, yes, honey, she went to heaven, so she will be okay now. Fade out. Now we're at the grave. Michael is putting shells around the shallow sandy grave and then stands and taps his closed fist to his chest. Michael, okay, little guy, at least the seagulls won't eat you now. He runs, rejoining his family, and they continue their walk. Sarah, I wonder if the seal's family will miss her. Michael says, if I can stop going down so far. Michael says, I'm sure of it, sweetie. Billy, I think maybe we should start heading back now. I'm tired and Sarah needs to take a nap. Sarah snatches her hand away from Billy and does a little fit. No, I don't, Mommy. I don't want to take a nap. Billy, I know, honey bun, but I'm tired. Sarah, can we go into the water again? Sarah runs a few feet toward the water, but turns to see if she has approval before going further. Billy, just our feet, okay? Sarah, okay, Mommy. Boy has found another stick and brings it to Michael, placing it at his feet. Boy looks up at Michael, wagging his tail. Michael, another toss, is it then? Michael reaches down and picks up the stick. Boy starts jumping around with excitement and anticipation. Michael throws the stick just a bit further into the water than he intended. A crab has momentarily caught Boy's attention, so he doesn't take off after the stick. Seeing this, Sarah starts to go after the stick. When Boy sees Sarah running, he charges after her. Sarah, I'll get it, Daddy. Billy is hollers. Sarah, no. Billy is alarmed, but it is too late as Sarah has already reached the stick fade out now we're at the water's edge a wind has picked up and the waves are crashing close to shore just as sarah reaches the stick a huge wave breaks over her and she disappears into the water there is a strong riptide and quickly she is dragged out to sea her head bobs to the surface once twice and then she is gone boy charges after and swims in circles where she was last seen billy screaming sarah sarah oh god 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 sarah michael michael do something michael sarah no no sarah sarah Michael runs and dives into the water fully clothed and also gets caught in the riptide. He dips into the water a few times frantically searching for his daughter. Billy stands at the edge of the water with a horrified look on her face. Michael searches until he is exhausted and cold. He returns to shore shivering with shock. Boy is the last to return and sits at their feet looking out toward the water. Billy and Michael stand staring out at the water in a complete state of shock. Billy falls to her knees in agony, dissolve. That's the opening scene. So Billy has uh, already had one traumatic event. Now, I'd like to share with you that 9/11 stuff I talked about, which includes Michael. He's a writer. Let me see if I can get to that real quick. Where he may, he's meeting his agent. And by the way, uh, when 9/11 happened, I my son was going to Princeton, and he. Uh, used to visit his stepdad um, every morning for breakfast at the windows of the World Restaurant on top of the tower. And his stepdad would ride his motorcycle in New York. And this one morning, that particular morning, he took his motorcycle to the shop so they couldn't meet that morning. And that's that's when the towers fell. So that's my closeness to that. But I think we were all close because we were all Americans. Let me get uh, to that. Michael is also on the highway. He's on his brand new Harley Davidson roaring toward the city of New York. Camera pans to see Michael crossing the Brooklyn Bridge going into Manhattan. Camera pans more and we see the World Trade Center standing majestically above the city. Michael stops and pulls into the World Trade Center. Michael enters the vast lobby and walks to the elevator banks. The lobby is full of people coming and going. He pushes 106 for the Windows on the World restaurant. He gets into the elevator with three other people. The elevator door closes. Michael walks to the reception desk. There is a couple waiting to be seated. The host seats them and then returns to greet Michael. Welcome to the Windows of the World, sir. Thank you. May I leave my helmet here? Certainly, sir. Is this your first visit to the Windows, sir? Yes, in fact, this is my first visit to New York City. Well, it is a grand day for it, sir. The host points toward out, the post points outward, toward the panoramic view of the city. The camera does a complete 360 pan showing Manhattan below. It's a beautiful and clear morning. Michael, I'm supposed to meet my agent here for breakfast, Mr. Jerry Feinstein. Has he had chance? Has he by chance arrived yet? Yes, sir, he's right this way. The host leads Michael to the table. There are other people having breakfast at different tables throughout the restaurant. Jerry stands as he sees Michael approaching. Michael, how are you? So nice to see you. They greet each other with a friendly handshake. They're genuinely happy to see one another. Michael, I'm good, Jerry. This has been quite a trip. Good to hear that. And what a lovely morning. Did you have any trouble finding your way around the city? No problem at all. I mean, the World Trade Center is quite a beacon. I brought a new Harley for the trip. I figured it would help me in the city traffic. Jerry, you got that right. The city is a beast to drive in. I guess that's why most of us use the subway. A Harley, huh? Wow. I've always wanted a Harley to feel the open road under my wings. I can only imagine. They sit. Michael, there are many things happening. There are many things happening. Your story is moving, both in LA and here in New York. In fact, yesterday, Richard in LA had lunch with Spielberg again. Michael, really? Jerry, it's the real deal, my friend. Hollywood is all over it. You're going to be famous. Michael smiles and he is overwhelmed. He bows his head so Jerry won't see his tearing eyes. The waiter appears and they order eggs, juice, and coffee. The two of them are enjoying their breakfast, their friendship, and their conversation. As the camera begins, a slow 360 pan again of the beautiful clear sky. Other people are finishing their breakfast and begin leaving the restaurant. There are a few people at different tables throughout the dining room. Michael and Jerry have just finished their breakfast and are chatting. There are three other people remaining. Jerry, I can't believe that she left you, not after what you had been through together with the loss of your little girl. Michael, I guess she just needed some time. It was very hard on her. On both of you. I'm so sorry, Michael. No one should have to lose their child, especially in such a tragic accident. Thank you, Jerry. It's something that is with me every second of every day. I guess that is why the roar of the motorcycle helps. Keeps my mind off things, if you know what I mean. Jerry, oh, I almost forgot. Richard is supposed to call me at nine this morning. What time is it? Michael looks at his watch. It's 8.45. Jerry, he should be calling any minute now. Then with good news, he should be calling any minute now then with good news on his meeting with Spielberg, I'm sure. They both sit quietly for a minute, sipping coffee, allowing their food to settle. Michael again looks at his watch and sees that it is now 846. The camera pans to clock on wall for close-up. As he's looking out the window, Michael sees the glimmer of something shiny. In the next instant, they feel a tremendous jolt to the building. Michael, what the, what the hell was that? I don't know, Jerry said. It felt like an earthquake or something. They sit still for a second. The host and the waiter both quickly leave the restaurant. Michael looks around and sees that other people are also very worried. Michael says, something's not right. The restaurant temperature begins to rise, and suddenly there seems to be a vast amount of hot, steamy smoke billowing in through the doors and vents. They look quickly outside and can see debris and fire from a few floors floors below. Michael, let's get the hell out of here, Jerry. This just isn't right. (coughs) Jerry, this way. In the hallway, Jerry leads the two of them to another set of doors leading to the staff elevator. There is smoke and intense heat everywhere. They push the elevator button, but it does not respond. They're having trouble breathing. Michael. This is my laptop. It doesn't react as quickly as one of them. Michael says, it's too hot. Get down on the floor, Jerry. Crawl to the stairway. Jerry has a complete look of shock and fear in his face. In the hallway, Jerry follows as they, and they crawl on their hands and knees toward the emergency exit sign. Stairwell. Michael pushes open the door and is shocked to see that the stairway is completely gone. Fire and smoke billow upward toward the open door. Michael, God damn it, God damn it. Jerry, what, what? He's in fear, of course. The stairway, it's gone. Jerry takes a quick look down the open hole. They notice one of the remaining patrons has been following them on her hands and knees. Jerry oh shit what are we going to do back into the restaurant quick the smoke is blinding as all three crawl back into the restaurant there are two other people crawling on the floor in the opposite direction they quickly disappear into the smoke the heat is by this time overwhelming and explodes one of the windows outward the crackling sound of fire can be heard Jerry what do we do Michael Michael I I don't know No, no way out we're trapped Jerry rolls over on his back and retrieves his cell phone from his pocket. He dials 911 but gets a busy signal. He tries again with the same result. Jerry, God damn it. He throws his cell phone across the room. By this time, the fire has pushed its way into the restaurant and is now climbing the curtains. They are panting with fear and lack of oxygen. Michael, get to the open window, Jerry. Michael looks at the woman and can see her near panic in her eyes. He tries his best to reassure her. Quickly, quick, crawl to the open window so we can breathe. At the window, all three get to the window and Michael tears away, tears away the burning curtains. They stand with their heads sticking outward through the broken window. Michael tries to shield the woman from the fire and heat. They fill their lungs with as much air as possible. They look below and can see only fire, debris and smoke. Jerry, are we gonna die, Michael? I, I don't wanna die, I don't wanna die. They continue hanging out the opening as the fire reaches them. They are burning. There is nothing but smoke and fire pushing them. The smoke forcibly charges past them and out the open window. They are unable to breathe. The noise of the fire is deafening. So they shout to hear one another. The woman begins a slow and agonizing scream in agony. Smoke and occasional flames can be seen pushing past the three of them as they hang onto the window. Michael looks at the woman. What is your name, woman? Patricia. I am Michael. Patricia, and this is Jerry. Patricia nods her head and is too frightened to utter a response. Patricia says, are we gonna die? Michael, we have one of two choices here. I think we're too high for anyone to get to us. It looks like we either stay and get burned alive or we jump. Patricia starts her low growling, but this time holds back the scream. She's crying. I have children. Michael hugs her close as Jerry joins in. The smoke and fire once again reminds them that they did not have much time. Michael says, I will hold your hand if you like. Patricia, would you please? Michael clasps Patricia's hand with his own. He looks toward Jerry, who is now so frightened he is frozen in place, hanging tightly to the side of the building. Jerry, you're crazy, I don't wanna die. I don't either, but we have no choice. This is it, my friend. This is it. The flames are rushing out over their heads. Michael is standing in the middle and looks toward Patricia and then toward Jerry. Michael then then looks at Jerry and grabs his hand. Jerry looks at Michael and nods. Michael, are you ready? Both nod and they jump. Jerry's grip breaks loose and he falls uncontrollably. Michael and Patricia almost glide on a free fall on their backs their hands are still clasped together. Their, class, their grasp breaks as they slowly drift alongside one another. As Michael glides in the still air, he has a flashback of that day on the beach and sees Sarah's smiling face as he falls. He hears her calling out to him, Daddy, I love you, Daddy, fade out. So that's the two, the two events that makes Billy go over the edge. And then she, and I'm not gonna go through the rest of the story, but then she meets uh, the demon in the, in the casino. And it, it's very visceral and very scary. It, and it got a lot of response on the internet and it almost made it into the can in um, Tales of the Crip. I rewrote it, a, I still owned it. So I rewrote it a little bit and added the jumper scene, the jumper stuff which I thought was really important after 9-11 because we all, you know, we don't, nobody knows who they are. So here, here's three people, you know, here's what happened to three people. So I think everybody can appreciate it and, and see it in their imagination. So if we could get that on on the right, if we can get the right people, for instance, to read that, that are connected with the new twilight zone or whatever they, you know, where it would really do well. Now, maybe, maybe not, I was thinking, of it, HBO is room 401, but I think that's for a soldier's final act, which is my last thing I want to share with you, and not as much. But a soldier's final act, let me give you the synopsis. This is where I'm at today. Like, I was talking about my two proudest moments. Well, I've discovered another one through my healing. I remember at one time when I was in the Redwoods, as I mentioned, acting when Patty died, my dog died. I had a get together once I invited all my actor friends and my veteran friends. And I lived in this area in Northern California twice in my life. I lived there once before, 10 years before beautiful park called Trinidad, California, overlooking the ocean, just amazing in the redwoods. And uh, I had this to get together. And this one gentleman veteran cornered me in the kitchen. He said, Michael, he said, "I, I want you to know that you said something to me 10 years ago that changed my life and i said really what what was that he said well i don't want to get into it i just want you to know that you changed my life things like that inspired me that i I realized that i could help people with my writing and then when I, i i was in the audience in dc when they did my play a healing of war and it was a, a different crew and a feminine director. And it was it got a carryover because it did so well. And I remember I was in the audience and they introduced me. And after the play, a young Marine came to me. And probably an Iraqi Marine veteran came to me. And he said, you were there, weren't you? I said, he said, I can tell by the words you used and things like that. So I realized I had helped this young man too with this, this work. Speaking what they're feeling, you know. So I've discovered that my probably my most important function and the proudest thing I can probably do is help instead of leading them in war and burying them in the ground to help them come back, and find themselves to help them rediscover the youth that they lost, the young man that they lost, that man that would never be that young man again, you know, the experiences they had to make them realize that that is something, to, regardless of what happened when they came home, that is something they need to hold their head up and be proud of. They need to be proud of that, you know? So my writing now helps them to find their way home, back to themselves. And I always, every veteran I meet, I thank them and I tell them, to hold that head up, you know, stop walking around with your head down, you know, like I did. It's time to hold your head up, you know, be proud. So a soldier's final act synopsis. A soldier's final act of kindness was the original word and uh, title, and then it became a soldier's uh, final act of redemption, and then I cut it down to a soldier's final act. And like I said before, we know about the suicide rates of veterans. At one time, it was 22 a day a year ago or two years ago, 22 a day. And a lot of them were Vietnam veterans. And now we have newer veterans that are troubled, PTSD and don't know how to handle it. But. The synopsis of my story, in the past year, 22 veterans a day ended their own lives. Suicide has been the second highest reason for adolescent deaths. This is the one that would be perfect for HBO's Room 401. Are you familiar with that, where they do this motel room and they have all these different stories that uh, kind of science fiction stuff stories that uh, happen in this one room?
0: I know of this show. I haven't had much of a chance to get into it.
1: Oh, you should should dig into that. I think you'd really like that. You're probably right. Our story begins with a troubled veteran in a hotel room. He's seeking help from the VA and is distraught and at his end. He's carrying ghosts that will not let him be at peace. He ends up taking his own life. We then find a family of three who are in the same room having difficulties of their own. The girl is 16 and goth, G-O-T-H. They are staying at the hotel due to their son who has been injured in a football accident. The father has never approved of his young daughter's lifestyle or choices while praising his son. The mother tends to side with the father, which leads to arguments between the three of them. The father, disgusted, eventually leaves the room. The mother soon follows, but has taken a pill from her purse. The daughter, noticing the pills, is about to take her own life. When the spirit of the veteran reappears, the girl is clairvoyant and senses the spirit close. The spirit sees her and what she is about to do. The dialogue between the two convinces the younger girl that suicide is not the answer, which leads to the reconciliation for the family. In saving the young girl, the veteran has redeemed himself and is transported into a bright light. That's a short synops- synopsis. I have one other... Uh, thing about that, Uh, where is it? Word, a synopsis, hang on. Hate laptops. Okay, cover letter for a soldier. Cover letter for a soldier's one. line. Cover letter, every story told in the script is a true story on my very own experience. This includes the ghosts that are always with me the stories happen just as they are written, including the mentioned music. If you're familiar with the HBO's Room 104, this would be a perfect story for them as everything happens in one hotel room. Black Mirror would be another potential. Are you familiar with Black Mirror?
0: Yes. Yeah, that's
1: a good one. This one hit home and was completed just last year. With COVID, I've had to put everything on a back burner, but this one is ready and has extreme potential to, to be a great healing story for many. So I speak of ghosts. Okay. So that's, so. this one is the one I want to promote. Now, this is the one that needs to get out there, a soldier's final act, because it is so prevalent, so timely, so real. Um, I, I want to throw in that we just recently lost a great American, a great patriot. It was just two months ago, June 6th on D-Day, just by chance that I had breakfast with Joseph L. Galloway and his wife, Gracie, and their little dog, his therapy dog, in Norfolk, Virginia. We had breakfast and talked, and it was a great, great meeting this man. And we I didn't even invited him into my upcoming wedding, which I'm finally going to do in October. But he died a couple, of three days ago, so I just think we lost a great American and a great patriot in Joe Galloway. He was the author of, of A Soldier's Final Act, I mean, I'm sorry. He was the author of We Were Soldiers Once and Young, and which was later made into a movie that, that took half the story, LZ x ray and, and made a movie out of it, We Were Soldiers with Mel Gibson. Good, good movie, good story. But when talking to Joe, he was really there. And he also had PTSD, which I really related to, because he saved the guy, pulled the guy out of harm's way, He was talking to me about it over breakfast. And then he said he died three days later from a friendly napalm strike, accidental napalm strike, which happened in war. And he started crying. And I I knew right then that he suffered PTSD as well. And he was a a hero and he wasn't even a soldier. He was a reporter. And he got the bronze star for pulling Jimmy Nakamura out of that uh, fight who later died. So, and then his wife, Gracie, said, asked me, he said, you were a Lieutenant? And I said, yes. And she said, and you're still alive? So it's, it's the, the attrition rate for a Lieutenant was very high. We were warned all the time when we were becoming officers that you're just gonna die. You know, life expectancy of a Lieutenant under fire is 10 seconds candidate and stuff like that. I think I was one of 126 officers and nine of us came back. I was there 68 and 69, the bloodiest years the northernmost part, and we were all wounded. So yeah, it was quite, a, quite an experience. But this story brings, brings people home. And what I'm going to do real quickly is just share a little bit of that with you so you can feel, feel, feel the ghosts. This first act is like a one-man one, one play. But I'll just share, it's only, it's a three act play. And it begins with, is there any other hypothesis or explanation for an act of kindness? Act one is the soldier, act two, the girl, act three, the redemption. (laughs) Setting is a hotel room. Act one, the soldier. Now these are all my true memories. This is what I sleep with and what I carry with me every day. Soldier enters, he's carrying. I've got this beautiful music with it too, but soldier enters, he's carrying an army's officer's dress uniform jacket. He's already wearing the dress uniform slacks that have a gold stripe down the sides of the legs. He lays the uniform jacket along with a small satchel on the bed. He then pulls his cell phone out of his pocket and dials a number. He then tries to be patient as he responds to a series of phone bank messages. With disdain, he presses a single number on his phone's keypad in response to each message. He lays the phone beside him on the bed. He stands and faces the audience as he grieves. And this is one of my favorite openings, really, of all the plays I've done. Well, he's talking to the audience. Uh, well, here I am at the crossroad. I used to think that life was this long drive, a journey, if you will, a journey to a destination or an objective as we were taught in the army. The objective was to get to the end, to complete the task, or in this case, to complete the journey. I compare it to driving, which by the way, I always enjoyed a, a nice car and a nice long drive. Sometimes I would drive for days and there were a few times when I would just start driving and end up going from one coast to the other, completely crossing our beautiful country. It was like in front of me was this long and winding road to be traveled. And when I would look in the rearview mirror, there was also this long and winding road of where I'd been before. But ahead, I started seeing an off ramp that was slowly coming into view. You know, life for me has always been one of travel to keep moving forward. Looking, Looking back is only sadness of things that have gone by. Really, the only thing that has kept me alive to this point has been leaving life in a forward motion one day at a time. And now I'm here. And here, I guess, is where I'm supposed to be. The logic may seem illogical to most. And it has been said that when a soldier finds his way to this point that he or she is con- confused and there are illogical assumptions. But to me, it's the only logical answer. It's perfectly clear now. An end to my journey. My father always said that officers don't have problems, that officers handle their own problems, yet I feel this terrible emptiness. It's like there's a piece of me missing, this deep sadness, so deep that it permeates my soul. You know, it took me forever to even admit that I had a problem. It was in the early to mid-80s when a wonderful veteran outreach counselor stood me in front of a full-length mirror and asked me a couple of things. Things like, am I having trouble keeping focused? Am I having trouble keeping a job? Am I having trouble relationships? And finally, do you have trouble relating to society? Yes. And then he said, look in the mirror. What do you see? I see me. Well, then maybe you're the problem. That was the day I first began healing. Jack Jones was his name, a Marine that had been wounded in the war. It was the beginning of the end of my 10-year post-war drifting, a drifting that carried me into the mountains of Blue Lake, California. I lived there in a trailer along the old logging roads for a year, isolated from people, just me and my dogs. But the ghosts were there they are always with me. They just won't let go. And then I won't go on from there, but that's that's the opening uh, where it's it's a one man play. And I I just think that uh, it, it's a tool. It's, it's, it's a, I think it's a gift that's been given to me to help help soldiers, help families, help people that have lost people. And there's some wonderful stories, the wonderful stuff that happens in this, uh, thing he when he talks to ghosts suddenly he lowers his head after saying that little piece and there's a piece of music playing there he picks up his dress jacket and puts it on he leaves it unbuttoned as the music fades he's distracted and speaks into a light so i have these different ghosts that that pit the audience won't see he says i know i know damn it i know it was my fault it was all my fault right i should have been standing there i should have been standing there it was meant for me First man I saw killed was my platoon sergeant, who was, everybody loved. It was my bullet. What? Yes, it was. You were standing where I would have been standing if I had commanded the platoon. I was new and you wanted to make sure I was ready to take command of the men. They trusted you. They trusted you with their lives. That damn sniper. He fired at the man in front of the radio operator. He knew that is where the officer would be. And when you fell, it was like a great tree had fallen. There was nothing I could do. Then I heard the breath of life leaving your body for the last time. He shudders. Oh, God, you took my bullet. You took my bullet. And then another ghost appears. And so he has all these different interactions with these true stories. And then my ghosts. But these soldiers are going to be, I mean, it, it, I want, What has happened in the past is the audience. You can hear a pin drop. They're on every word, which is the greatest compliment to a writer. Indeed, everybody's on every word,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and they want to see what happens next. You know, so I take them through this whole journey. I I mean, this one is this one's visceral. This one's blood and guts. This is going to take, and everybody's going to go, oh God. You know, we 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 let this one slip through our fingers. He's gone. His wife pleads with him. He He tries to reach out to his doctors. Um, And I mean, it's just uh, if you want me to share the next ghost, I will go right ahead. Okay, another ghost. He speaks into another light. Harris, why didn't you move when I said to move. These are my these are my you're listening to true stories. And I mean, the writing is creative, but the, the stories are intact. Harris is a real name. I know, I know, you just wanted to give cover while we got the wounded out and we did, thanks to you. You were so brave, all of you were so damn brave. He lowers his head and weeps. He walks around the room, shaking it off. He reaches for the phone and once again, he dials. He pushes the buttons in response to the numerous phone bank message. He continues, finally, yes, I would like to speak with Dr. Rawlings, please. And could you tell him it's an emergency? Myers, yes, M-Y, not M-E-Y. Yes, he is. How long do you think that will be? Yes, I know about that number. Lady, if I was going to commit suicide, I would not be calling for Dr. Rawlings, now would I? Stares at phone and shakes his head in disbelief. Listen to me. He told me that I could call him whenever I needed him. And that would be now. I need him now. Leave a message on his voicemail really shouts in anger are you kidding me he shuts off the phone and angrily tosses it onto the bed then he shouts at the phone damn you he storms off stage and then quickly returns he paces back and forth he sits he stands he paces some more then he looks downward at the phone the phone rings hello dr rawlings yes i'm sorry to bother you but i'm having a rough go right now tomorrow Is there any way I can get in to see you today? Tomorrow? Doc? Doc, I'm really having a rough time. The dreams are all over me. Two? Two o'clock tomorrow? Well, okay. I, I, I mean, I guess I'll see you tomorrow then. Huh? What was that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, then tomorrow right Tosses his phone back onto the bed sits on bed and cradles his head between his palms tomorrow my ass damn it god damn it stands and paces exits crashing sounds enters fucking va shitty bottom of the barrel service and fucking clerks with bad attitudes another light and another ghost steve o'hara I'm so sorry, Steve. I remember you and Roger were laughing so hard just the night before. Your heads were tilted back in hysterical laughter, laughing so hard that it made me laugh with you. He laughs. laughs. I remember asking what was so funny, but the two of you just kept laughing with nothing, sir. Nothing LT. Whenever you men called me LT, it always made me feel like I was a part of you like your big brother and not just your platoon leader. That is the image I try to carry with me, Steve, that wonderful image of the two of you laughing, but that is not the image that haunts me, the image that keeps jumping into my dreams. Is that Roger with you? He looks over Steve's shoulder. Roger, you were just a kid, Roger, not quite 18 yet. It was my fault. I sent you. I watched the two of you disappear into that tree line. And then after a couple of minutes, I listened to that goddamn AK. You were just trying to get to Steve and pull him out of there after he'd gone down. We found you where you fell. Your head was laying across Steve's chest. It was my fault. Don't you understand? I was the lieutenant. I was supposed to bring you home. Don't you understand? Don't you understand? He pleads to the audience. Doesn't anyone understand? It was my fault. It was my fault. He's distracted by another light. Menconi, you really made me angry, William. You insisted on getting a rifle platoon, didn't you? I told you we needed you with your weapons platoon, but you insisted. He sits on the edge of the bed. You had to get your goddamn rifle platoon, didn't you? And look where it got you. Caught between two enemy bunkers trying to save one of your soldiers. They could only watch as you were riddled with automatic weapons. He lowers his head and weeps. Damn it, man. If you'd only listen to me. If you'd only just listen to me. He gathers himself, himself and sees the cell phone next to him. He, he something. Hang on. Picks it up and dials. Come on, Veronica. Come on. Answer. Answer. Please answer. He shuts the phone off and holds it in his lap for a few seconds. Then he redials. He paces as he leaves a message. Veronica, if you get this message, he weeps. Listen, I want you to know I'm sorry. I'm so sorry for any of the pain I may have caused you. And I want to know that I loved you so very much, but I'm was just a stupid mixed up soldier. I do hope you understand that I just can't live with the guilt any longer. Why am I here? Why did I survive when so many of my men didn't? By holding the phone in his hand, he looks up upward to God and calmly asks, why God, why me? He Continues pacing, he sits down on bed, stands again and continues pacing. Once again, he addresses God. Why am I the one still alive? Jose Feliciano's Light My Fire comes up, it's playing in the background, another ghostly light. He listens to the music for a minute and sees another ghostly light. Captain, I don't even remember your name, sir. I do remember you always asking me for all sorts of different weapons though. Even a Pearl-handled 38 caliber pistol. I thought you were trying to be some sort of a cowboy. You said as the artillery forward observer, you would be flying over enemy territory and that you just wanted to be prepared. Then I was told that you'd been shot down. The last thing anyone heard on the radio was small arms fire. I hope you gave them hell, sir. Damn it. I am so sorry for not remembering your name. I do remember you said you had just been married to your beautiful new French wife. I remember how much you loved her and how much she loved this song. Now, when I hear this song, I'm always reminded of you and your lovely wife. If only I'd gotten your name, I could find her and tell her how much you loved her. How much you loved her. The music fades. He returns his attention to the phone. This is all just the first step. And dials. We hear his therapist from offstage. Therapist, hello? Soldier Lorraine, this is Michael. Therapist, Michael, it's been a while since our last appointment. How are you doing? He hesitates. I guess I'm not doing very well. Oh, what's wrong? She's distracted by someone. Hang, Hang on, Michael, just a second, okay? I'll be right back. Waits for a minute until she returns. She's aggravated. Sorry about that, Michael. She says, are you there, Michael? Soldier, yes, I'm here. I'm sorry for calling, but I guess I just needed to talk to someone. Therapist, would you like to make an appointment? Let let me see. I'm on vacation until after the holidays, but I have a one o'clock appointment available on the 16th. Does that work for you? The 16th? Yes, that is the earliest. If I miss my vacation, I will lose my days. Silence. I can schedule you for then, but if you need to see someone sooner, you can call Dr. Rollins. Soldier. Thank you. I've done that. Oh, you have? Good. I'll put you down for the 16th then. Michael? And he says, I want to thank you. I really wanna thank you for all you've done for me. Therapist, you're very welcome, Michael. I just wish we could do more for you. I will see you in a couple of weeks then. Seriously, thank you, Lorraine, for all you've done for me. And we wanna thank you, Michael, for what you've done for us. He stares at the phone and then redials. Ronnie's voice can be heard from offstage as she answers. Michael, it's me, Ronnie. Ronnie says, honey? Where are you? I've been very worried. Where are you, Michael? Soldier, I did the best I could, didn't I? Was I a good man, Ronnie? Was I a good father? Ronnie, what do you mean was? You're a very good man, baby. You're an excellent father. Are you having the dreams again, Michael? He pauses, lowers his head, and wipes his eyes. Michael? Michael, are you there, Michael? She screams, Michael! Yes, it's the dreams again. I lost so many people. It's just not right. Ronnie says, You were a kid, Michael. All of you were just kids. You were only 22. It's a shame what happened to you, to all of you. Soldier, but a leader is not supposed to be alive when his men are not. I just cannot get over it. And I walk with the ghosts, ghosts who will never let go of me. Is KK there? No, honey. She's having a pajama party at my sister's house tonight. Oh, I wanted to say goodbye. What do you you mean goodbye? Michael, what do you mean goodbye? Soldier, the insurance will be enough for you and little Katie. Please take care of her and make sure she knows just how much her daddy loved her. Michael, Michael, don't do this to us. We need you, Michael. He breaks again. I'm sorry, Ronnie. Please find true happiness. Ronnie, Michael, no, Michael, no, please, baby, don't do this. Please, baby, please don't leave us, she screams. Michael, Michael, he kisses the phone and then gently places the phone beside him. He stares at it and sits for a long minute, completely distraught. He weeps as he reaches into his satchel and retrieves the handgun. He paces in anxiousness. He buttons his jacket and straightens the lapels. He stands tall with gun and left hand at his side he salutes the audience and then walks off stage. In a couple of seconds, a gunshot. Ronnie can be heard screaming his name, "Michael, Michael!" That's the first act. That's it. That's about as I can't. I can't keep reading. I mean, I, but that's that. You can see the intensity and the, and the suicide. I mean, we know about suicide, but here's one, and here's the truth, and here's true stories, and here's true desperation and the battles that we go through with the va and getting help and and it's it seems to always be a struggle because nobody ever told us how to put it to rest and find our way back so i'm hoping that this play because his spirit comes back and the act two is an intense act between family and he comes back in a spirit form, which is amazing, because he doesn't know what where he's at or what he's doing. He kind of remembers what he did. And then it, through the process of talking to her, he remembers that what he did and it comes to a reaction. He left his daughter and his wife. And he helps her to realize that people love her, that she's not thinking about the people that love her. She's only thinking about the people she loves, which is important. I mean, we have to have love for people, right? But what is overlooked is that when we... Take that final act like that, especially veterans, you do that, you're cutting that golden cord that other people depend on, too. You know, that's a lifeline of love between you and other people. And even though you feel unloved, you're still taking their lives in your hand when you're in your own, you know?
0: That's absolutely right. And that's something that people who commit suicide always lose sight of in the long run. Right. I've got two questions for you right here. Okay. One is you've set up several fantastic examples of your work, and I'm sure anybody who's listened to this point wants to follow what you're doing. So the first thing I'm going to ask is where can people keep tabs on what you're writing, what you're putting out there, and really anything that you might have in the future that you're looking to do?
1: Well, because of COVID, I've been on a standstill like everybody else, but I think, I think, Probably to see what I'm doing, probably uh, my webpage, uh, which is, w. Uh, you call me Mike Myers, of course, but my webpage is com. And that'll take you to my webpage. And my email is on my webpage and anybody can feel free to write me. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm looking for opportunities to, to get it out there. I, I think everybody will realize... That the the work itself was visceral, gutsy, and very pertinent, timely, and we got a lot of veterans that need need help, and a lot of families. And I just uh, I think maybe just my web page. I have nothing going on right now, as far as production because of COVID. So we're just
0: opening up the door, you know? Sure. But you're, you have completed works. You're working on more stuff. And that's what brings me to my next question, okay. because I'm listening to you here and I'm, I'm hearing a guy who can not only put together a good story with some real teeth to it and truth in both the, uh, the actual real person history, as well as, you know, any sci-fi fantasy you want to wrap around it. Have you ever considered making a podcast? Uh, no, I never have. Tell you okay, truth. because I'm, I'm hearing you read your own work. And there's definitely a draw to listening to this in your own words. And I'm betting that you could find people who would want to talk about this who have a similar background, but don't have the outlet that you have. It's, it's a suggestion I'm making to you.
1: Wow, so I, what are you thinking? A podcast where I could just share work, like read, like a, a podcast, say, I'm going to be reading this work and stuff like that.
0: That's it's one thought. I know a lot of authors have gotten started with their publishing careers by giving away samples free on the internet. It's not a bad way to go.
1: I did have the second most read uh, play on the internet a few years ago, a play called uh, think twice. It was about homelessness and suicide and, and having riches and going to rags. And and uh, it was second most read on the internet and it ended up being produced in uh Durban, South Africa, Durban, South Africa university. There you go. So I did have that uh, experience once before, but I don't even know how to do a podcast. So I I don't
0: know how to do that. Well, I'm, there's a lot of places you could go. You could always tap me on the shoulder. Um, I do want to wrap this up here so we can get on. Yes, sir. Uh, And I would love to have you back once I get a chance to read some more of your stuff. That'd be fantastic. Okay. Mr. Myers, thank you so much for being here. I do appreciate you being on, and I'll talk to you soon. It's been my honor. I would like to thank Michael for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. I would really like to talk again about the legacy that Michael is carrying on, being somebody who is bringing his experience in the service to a creative field afterward. It's helping him, it's helping other people. And there's a long line of people doing this, ranging from, like I said earlier, J.R.R. Tolkien, Gene Roddenberry, Rod Serling. These were all people who used their experience in the service to bring creativity to the world after and tell great stories about the human condition, stories that needed to be told that really nobody else was in the position to tell. So if you have insight into a person like that, whether that be somebody that you know personally, whether if you are that person, or it's somebody who's passed on whose work that I should be aware of, please reach out to me at bossigpodcast.yahoo.com or follow my Twitter at Aaron Bossig. My DMs are always open. Don't forget, you could subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube and we are syndicated on Realm of the Mist, a fantastic podcast network. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.